Welcome to the Well Community Jokes. Hey, Benbrook. It's really good to see you guys. Well, technically, it's not really good to see you guys. I mean, it would be good to see you guys if I could, but I, I can't because I'm on a screen. And it's kind of weird for me to say it's really good for you to see me, even though that's what's happening, because that sounds kind of arrogant. So let's forget about that. I'm going to start over. Hey, Benbrook. Uh, my name is Wes Dixon. I'm the youth pastor at Gateway Church. Uh, Kevin asked me to give you guys a bit of a message. So uh, without further ado, I'm going to kick right off. I'd like to start, though, by talking to you guys about uh, small groups. They're one of the flagships of the modern church, and kind of with good reason. You know, we believe uh, that they're key for develop, uh, for discipleship, you know, one of the keys anyways, and uh, for going deeper in our relationships with Jesus. And uh, we believe that this just happens best, discipleship, and growing deeper in our faith with other people. Um, with that said, though, they've been around the church for quite a while, and so uh, it's kind of natural a few jokes about small groups, stereotypes of sorts, have kind of crept in. And uh, you can check it out uh, via the Babylon Bee. I got a few headlines for you. There's some pretty funny ones, um, but let me give you a few. Uh, number one is uh, beer hidden in garage moments before first small group members arrive. Um, the Babylon Bee is a Christian satire group. If you don't know about it, they just make kind of jokes about Christianity and usually they're pretty funny. Uh, another one is home Bible study leader asks if anybody else has any blatant heresy they'd like to share. Uh, church small group looking forward to six-week study of awkward silences. A couple narrowly escapes out of window after small group leader busts out board game collection. Bible study group stays on top topic for entire message. Now, you see, small groups, they're great. They introduce us to each other in the church, uh, but they're often cliched because they've been around uh, for so long. You know, we get to meet people in depth, you know, the people that we sit with on a Sunday or maybe on a Saturday for you guys. The beauty of small groups is that you quickly get to see different people. You get to meet people in depth. And uh, one of my favorite things is you get to be introduced to other people in their walks of faith and seeing uh, where they're at. And one of the things that I find in that case is you often get to uh, see and feel how maybe inadequate your faith kind of seems compared to others sometimes. I give this example of... Um, what this can sometimes feel like in a joking way to my senior highs at a winter retreat one time. Uh, but have you experienced something like this? You know, you're sitting in a small group, um, you know, you got a leader and, and the leader's like, okay guys, you know, let's talk about what God's been doing in our lives. And you're like, oh, here we go again. Awkward silences all around. But with that said, there's always one person in the group, weirdly enough, everybody else is like, oh, this is awkward. I don't know what to say, but there's one person who's so, so interested and ready to share what's going on in their life. We'll call them... Kevin today, just 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 by uh, random coincidences, we'll call them Kevin. So you know, there's always a Kevin in the group who's like, "Oh, me! I I, I know what I want to say. I, I God has been doing amazing things in your life." And you're like, "Oh man, here we go!" And so Kevin just starts. Well, let me tell you about what God's been doing. Yesterday, while I was on my third prayer walk of the day, a God sent an angel down from the heavens to tell me to go down to the river. And so as I went down to the river, I was reciting Psalm 8 at 3:30 p.m. on a Tuesday, as I always do. I came down and I saw a puppy drowning in the river. Now, I was freaking out, but the water was too strong for me to go get the puppy. And so I prayed, God, would you split and part the river? And yay, did the rivers part. And the puppy was there safe and sound. But when I picked it up, I found that the puppy was not alive. And so I prayed in Latin, sole fide, sole gloria. And all of a sudden, the puppy sprang back into life. It was a miracle by God the Father that he would let that dog live. And you're sitting there like, 
Come on! And as soon as you're thinking that in your head, he actually pulls the dog out from under his seat and you see this alive, beautiful, and wonderful puppy. And everybody's sitting there with their jaws dropped. And you know, there's somebody just sitting there and the, the leader's just sitting there and goes, wow, Kevin, that's amazing. God is so good. And they turn to you and they go, hey, now, is God doing anything in your life? And you're like, <clears throat> Um, I prayed that I would win a TV in the roll-up, the rim to win competition, and I got a coffee, so, um, I don't know, I'm, I'm batting pretty well so far. Jokes aside, though, uh, small groups, they introduce us to all sorts of people, um, but with that said, uh, there could be some interesting dynamics that come out of this because you get to see people at different points in their journeys and that is a good thing, right? Uh, you see it's, it's good to have people in your life who are further along in their faith so they can counsel you and help you in theirs. Um, and so they can also just concretely demonstrate what it looks like to go deeper in your faith. But I do find there are moments, and I, I illustrated here with a joke, but, but it can be serious sometimes where, and this isn't anybody else's fault, but, but your own or my own, but where I, I find myself personally comparing my own walk to somebody else's. And almost in a jealous sense. Again, I made a joke about it, but it's something that can seriously happen sometimes. And I find that this particular happens with people who are really strong in their faith. That is to say, they have an absolute trust in God. Those kind of people. You know who I'm talking about. You know, those people whose faiths are just unshakable. They can pray for anything with absolute confidence that God is going to do something. It doesn't matter what it is. Financial need, healing, unity, strength, you name it. They believe in total faith that God's going to provide for them. And even when he doesn't, they still have Faith. They always trust him. And maybe it's just me, but that's bittersweet. That's sweet in the sense of, wow, that is beautiful. Wow, that's impressive. That's, that's awesome. But bitter because I, I know that's not me. That's not my faith. I doubt too much for that. And you see, that's the issue. You see, when I meet these people, it isn't uh, this, always this amazingly encouraging moment for me. Often, I find I get a sense of, inadequacy. They're so strong in their faith, they trust in God, and I feel like I doubt more often than I trust in God. And it becomes this moment where I just feel like I'll never reach the point that they're at. I find that doubt can be one of the most discouraging parts of my walk with Jesus. And at times, it kind of feels like something I'm just never going to get over. I say that even as a pastor. I mean, let's get totally real here. We have students here at Gateway who are really ill, a ton of students in fact, and children with serious conditions uh, that are actually kind of threatening their lives. And I pray for them. Like, let me tell you, I pray fervently for these kids, but if I'm being completely and totally honest with you, when I pray for those kids, there is part of me that wavers sometimes. Uh, there is part of me that wonders, there is part of me that actually inaudibly asks the question of whether or not God will actually do something. Whether or not even maybe sometimes that God, does he actually care about them if this is happening? Me, the youth pastor, Wes, I doubt when I pray for my students sometimes. And it's not just with that, but it's with finances and relationships and everything else under the sun that could bring me anxiety. I pray fervently into these things, but there are days when I say these words, I trust him, but I can feel at the bottom of my heart that part of me doesn't mean what I'm saying. There's part of me that actually doesn't trust him. There's part of me that some days uh, feels deeply hypocritical when I pray. My mouth says one thing, but my heart feels another. And I confess this all to you, not so I can feel better about myself, because, but because I believe that I'm not alone in this experience with what I'm describing. I say this because when I talk to people about prayer and faith and doubt, uh, so often this is their experience too. 
And so today, I want to frankly talk about this because I've been uh, wrestling with this topic in in, uh, my faith and my own personal devotional times. And so we're going to ask this question, what do we do with doubt? And maybe even more specifically, how do we faithfully live with doubt? I know, it kind of sounds oxymoronic, Wes. Faith and doubt, they can't go hand in hand. And uh, to that, I'd say, drop the facade for just a minute. And let's be real here. Just, Just a minute. In a perfect world, I'm sure we wouldn't have doubt. Uh, You have faith or you don't, but we don't live in a world like that. We live in a world where some days I am so sure of God's work in my life, and the very next I'm wondering if he's around. And there's this tension, right, where we want this perfect faith, but we experience something else. But here's the thing. Uh, We know that this perfect faith, uh, although it feels unattainable, the opposite side of the pendulum also isn't good. Uh, Giving up, jumping into cynicism isn't a realistic way to go about things either. Walking away from the faith because of our doubts, uh, that's not what we want either. So there's this uh, ground of perfect faith and walking away because of our doubts, and we want to live in the middle ground, in the tension, in the midst of doubt and faith. And the question, and that's the question we want to wrestle with today. What do we do with this? How do we find this middle ground? And to do that, we're going to read Mark 9, 14 to 29. Bit of a long story, but it's a story uh, with Jesus in it that really talks about uh, this topic, about this middle ground of faith and doubt. You'll see what I mean. Uh, Let's read together. Uh, Grab your Bibles, grab your phones. Uh, It'll probably be up on the screen, whatever you'd like. Starting in verse 14, uh, just to give you some context, this is a group coming up. Um, sorry, this is Jesus coming down from a mountain. We'll talk about that later. But Jesus is coming down to this group of disciples, and it's just a mess there. Okay? When they came to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd around them, and the teachers of the law arguing with them. As soon as all the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder and ran to greet him. But what are you arguing with them about, he asked. A man in the crowd answered, Teacher, I brought you my son who is possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, he gnashes his teeth, and he becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they couldn't do it. You unbelieving generation, Jesus replied. How long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. So they brought him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it threw the boy into a convulsion. He fell to the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked the boy's father, how long has he been like this? From childhood, he answered. It has often thrown him into a fire or water to kill him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. If you can, said Jesus, everything is possible for one who believes. Immediately, the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe, but help me overcome my unbelief. When Jesus saw a crowd was running to the scene, he rebuked the impure spirit. You deaf and mute spirit, he said, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. The spirit shrieked and convulsed him violently and came out. The boy looked so much like a corpse that many said, he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him to his feet and he stood up. After Jesus had gone indoors, his disciple asked him privately, why couldn't we drive it out? He replied, this kind can only come out by prayer. So let's break this story down. Because again, it talks about doubt uh, quite a bit. So the scene that we just read comes right after the transfiguration on top of the mountain. So you have to uh, imagine Jesus and a few of his uh, core disciples walk up to the mountain. They have this amazing experience. Down on the lower mountainside, uh, the other disciples uh, have this guy who came up 
with this demon-possessed son. Everything is going wrong. Um, and he comes up and he asks them, hey, can you help me? The crowds are piling around because they see what's going on. It's crazy stuff. They know who Jesus is. They know who the disciples are. So people are all uh, interested. And there's this big mess of people as Jesus and the other disciples slowly come down. And you can just imagine as Jesus sees this group, he's thinking, what now is going on? And as he does, and he, and, he, and he says this out loud, a person from the crowd speaks out, and he says, look, it's because of me, it's my fault. I have a demon-possessed son. I brought him to your disciples, uh, but they couldn't heal him. In fact, the, the, in the story here, the father goes on to give some uh, real explicit description of what uh, is going on. Uh, because you need to know, Mark, even though it's the shortest gospel, it kind of contains the most detail when it comes to certain stories. Um, specifically all accounts of demon possession and violent acts. Uh, they have the most description of Mark, and this case is no different, right? The demon forces this child along the ground to foam in his mouth. Um, he gnashes his teeth, and he's talking about the fact that he's been doing this for years. And so uh, the father is describing this in detail to Jesus at this point, and what you're, the implication that you're kind of getting from this is this is awful, it's violent, and the issue is that nothing has helped so far. Uh, the implication you kind of get is actually that the father has tried everything else. You know, he might have gone to doctors, to, to otherwise people. He's looked around, but now he's going to a random speaker around Galilee who he's heard maybe does miracles. He is desperate at this point. And so I want to slow down right here because this is really key. I want to look at this first part of the story um, where the father asked Jesus for help. I want to zoom in. At first glance, it looks like the father is asking Jesus very kindly for help. So, right, he explains the whole story to Jesus. And then he says to him, hey, if, if you can help, will you? If you can. And it kind of sounds like he's being kind. It's something that we kind of say, you know, hey, man, if it's not too much of an issue, could you do this for me? Could you help me move? Hey, man, if it's not too much, could you take me to the airport? We say it to people all the time. Uh, it seems to be what the father is getting. And Jesus, you know, if it's not too much for you, might you heal my child? Would you do that for me? But you see, uh, Jesus is able to see into the heart of what the father is saying. We catch this in Jesus' response. He asks a question using the words of the Father. He says, if I can. You see, Jesus knew that the Father here wasn't looking to be kind. Uh, he wasn't being rude. That's not to say he was being rude at all, in fact. Um, but he was able to see that the Father actually was doubting here. I mean, we went over at this, but this man has most likely at this point tried everything. Uh, this was a long-term issue that he had dealt with. And so it makes sense that we find the father not boldly asking in the power of Jesus' name that his son be healed. No, he's actually asking it pretty timidly. If you can, if it's possible, and if you have the ability, nothing else has worked at this point. Can you help me? And from this, I want to draw a few things. Firstly, Jesus knew about the doubt that was in the heart of the Father. He could see it plain as day. And I think this is actually the, the, the first answer to the question of, of how do we deal with doubt. I think the first thing that we need to remember is that Jesus already knows our doubts. They're not a mystery to him. I find um, so often in my life, what I do is I try to hide the idea that I'm doubting from God. You know, Whatever the doubt is, a part of me for some reason believes that you know, if I don't acknowledge it or if I don't think about it, that in some way... God won't know. You know, somehow the guy who created everything, the world, heaven and earth, me, who knit me together, who knows my innermost thoughts, I somehow, you know, believe for some reason, if I don't think about it, if I don't say it out loud or even just say it in my mind, then God won't really know what's going on in this situation and the doubt that I'm feeling. 
it's kind of like when you're growing up as a kid and you know you really hurt your sibling, you're wrestling, you're fighting with them, and you hit them, I'm sorry, they hit you, and so you're the bigger sibling, and so you hit them much harder back, and now the issue is is that what they did to you wasn't that bad, but what you just did to them is really bad. You gave them a black eye, you cut them by accident, they maybe fell down, they broke something. You know, Everybody has a story like that of some kind. And when this happens, they start to cry and they say the words, I'm telling mom. And so at this point, six-year-old you, seven-year-old you, 10, 12, 15, 20-year-old you is like, no, 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 please, please don't do that. Don't, don't say, don't tell mom, okay, you can do anything. You can have a free hit on me. Just please don't tell them. And all the while, they're sitting with a lump on their head the size of the baseball that you threw at their head. And I mean, as a kid, you don't think it through. Maybe even as an adult, sometimes you don't think it through. But, you know, it's, it's, it's obvious. Your parents are going to figure it out, right? Your parents are going to know whether or not your siblings tell them or not. And it's kind of the same with God and us. God is our heavenly father. He's a caring father. He knows our innermost thoughts. He knows our thoughts actually better than ourselves. And so what good does it try to hide our doubts from him? Uh, pretending they're not there certainly won't make them go away. Uh, it's just like when you slap your sibling across the cheek, you pretending it's not there won't make that slap mark go away. And so with this in mind, although doubts, they, they might be embarrassing, they might be stressful, they might be complicated, the best way for it is to actually bring them to God. But here's the tension. The issue is that you've been told at some point probably, I'm willing to bet in your faith that you're not supposed to doubt. You see, what you're hearing me say and what you've heard somebody else say is probably two very different things. You can't doubt because, you know, doubt is the opposite of faith. Don't you know that? Wes, don't you know you can't doubt because God won't hear your prayers then. You can't doubt because, let's be honest, Wes, Christians don't do that. If you're like me, you've either implicitly through the general culture of the church or explicitly through somebody actually telling you this has said uh, that you can't doubt and the reason is actually really, really simple. It's because a doubt is sin. And look, you've got to know, Christian, God hates sin. And so, uh, like with your sibling, and when you're terrified to go to your parents, you feel the exact same tension here. I, if I go to God with my doubts, he'll be angry because God hates doubting. But I want to draw your attention to how Jesus responds to the doubt here. It's really key. He sees the doubt, and what does he do? He doesn't get angry. He doesn't flip a table this time. He's actually really calm. He sees the doubt of the Father and he reminds him of God's truth. Uh, Jesus responds to the man by reminding him that all things are possible to those who believe. In essence, God can do anything with faith. That's all. Nothing more or less in this first part of the interaction. I mean, you could even make the argument here that Jesus actually wants the man to bring the doubts to him because of how kindly and how well he deals with it. And I think that's how it's actually always been with God. Uh, take a look at the Psalms. They're songs, hymns, prayers written by Israel to God, and you can see some of the most candid and honest words in Scripture written there. Uh, some of the words are uh, praise and adoration for God, and some, sometimes, not so much. Take a look at Psalm 13, 1-2. How long, Lord? Will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? Uh, this psalm here, it's attributed to King David. We have no idea what's specifically going on in his life, but whatever it is, we can tell that it's not so good. It's actually causing David to question God. How long, God, is this going to go on for? You've forgotten me. You're hiding your face from me. Everything is wrong. He's doubting God. 
His expectation is that God would be with him, that he, uh, God would help him, that God would make his life into something. Whatever the situation is, obviously that is not the case at any, in any way, shape, or form. David is angry. He's frustrated. And so the question is, God, how long? How long are you going to do this for? You say you're so good. You say you're so loving. Well, look at where my life is. It's not true. How much longer is this going to be? You see, Psalms like this are comforting to me because God actually chose them to have them uh, in the Bible. If you believe that God directed the process to give us this Bible that we have, if you believe that it is his word that he's given us, and then you have to believe that he chose Psalm 13 to actually be in the Bible. And trust me, Psalm 13 is not an odd psalm. It's very common for this language to be used. A, a lament is a common thing. And this is what brings me so much comfort. Uh, or comfort sorry. You see, God, in including these psalms in the scriptures, is saying that I am not afraid of emotion. I am not afraid of how people actually feel. I am not afraid of doubts. These are not kind words that, that David's using. He's using really candid and honest language. It's really not kind. He's trying to describe to God how he's feeling, and God let that be a part of Scripture, an example for us. God is not afraid of our doubts. Let me say that again. God is not afraid of your doubts. He is not afraid of how you actually feel, of how you actually think. And in fact, when we look at the Psalms, you see that he actually allows you to discuss them with, uh, allows you to discuss them with him very, very frankly. And when looking at how Jesus interacts with people who doubt, it's clear that God actually invites us to bring these forward to him. God doesn't want us to hide our doubts and our insecurities from him, no matter how big or small they are. It's actually good for these to get out in front of you. And so I think the second answer or step in how do we deal with a doubt, how do we live faithfully, uh, uh, how do we faithfully live with our doubts is we have to bring our doubts to God. We need to acknowledge that God actually already knows our thoughts and feelings and then bring them to him. I mean, if we believe God is a God who loves us and who is looking to sanctify us, to make us more Christ-like, then we have to be honest with him in our prayers. Now, we shouldn't be afraid to pray what's on our minds, in fact. We should very specifically pray to him about our doubts. We should bring these to God. I mean, to an extent, there's just a level of honesty and genuineness that this brings to your relationship with him. What good is it, in some sense, to, to thank God for the day and these amazing world around you when your thoughts are really actually on the fact that you don't know if you're going to make uh, ends meet at the end of the month? If that's the only thing to think of and you really don't feel those things that you're saying, what good is it to say them in the moment? Now, what good is it to say, God, you're so good uh, when given what's going on in your life, given the stress that you're under, given the circumstances that you find yourself in, you honestly do not believe that right now. And no, I'm not saying we shouldn't praise God when we don't feel like it. That's, that's not it. But there just is a level to which, uh, because there's a level to which that God always deserves our praises. But I am trying to say that you should be honest with God even in that praise. He already knows your thoughts. He isn't afraid of them. And so you can even bring those doubts to him. Now, the question, though, at this point that remains is this. What do we do when we bring those doubts to him? What do we do? And to answer that, I want to jump back into the Mark text for a moment. So the, father doubts, the father's doubts are brought before Jesus, right? He explains everything. They're kind of more exposed, right? Because Jesus sees the heart of the issue. And the father says, if you can help, then please do. And Jesus responds, if I can, right? All things are possible uh, to the one who believes. And now uh, let's take a look at the father's response to what Jesus says here, because I think this is the climax of the entire story. 
The father in response to Jesus' reminder that all things are possible to the one who believes. In response to Jesus' correction of his doubt, he screams this out. I'm going to paraphrase it a bit, but he says this because it's in other translations. I believe, but help my unbelief. I believe, but help my unbelief. I'm just going to let you hold on to that for a moment. Let me tip my hand here. I think this is one of the most powerful prayers ever made in Scripture, and perhaps the most human. In response to Jesus calling out his doubt, the Father does something amazing. Instead of arguing that there was some kind of justification for it, or denying it, or shrinking away in his doubt, the Father does something amazing. He calls out to Jesus, I believe, but help my unbelief. He looks at Jesus and says, you're right, I'm doubting, you're right, this is hard for me, but Jesus, I do believe there's just a part of me that doesn't, and I just, I need your help, even with that. You see, the father in his doubt turns to Jesus for help, and man, I think this is the key. If you pay attention to anything that I've said, if you're asleep, wake up right now. This is just the moment you need to listen to. I don't care if you walk away with anything but this. It is inevitable that you will doubt in your life. It just, it will happen. You know that. God knows that. Everyone who lives and breathes knows that. We are human, and oftentimes our anxiety gets the best of us. Our fears rise and cause doubts, and cause us to doubt. And so the question is not, will you doubt? It's not. But the question that we want, and the question that's actually asked is, what will you do with that doubt? You see, there are two options when it comes to doubt. Doubt can push you away from God, or it can push you to God. Those are your only options. And that right there is the moral dilemma when it comes to doubt. It is not about whether or not you will, because you will doubt. It is about what you do with it. See, the Father pushed into Jesus in the midst of his doubt about what Jesus would do. He didn't shrink or run away. He went to Jesus and he said, Jesus, help my unbelief. Jesus, help me in my doubts. Jesus, help me in my uncertainty. And that faith was enough for Jesus. That belief was enough. That mustard seed of faith was enough for Jesus to heal his son. A crowd was really beginning to develop. Jesus sees the situation, the commotion of it all. And Jesus, in seeing the faith of the Father, in in stepping down to where he was, he heals his son. In the same way, I think it's so important in dealing with doubt. The number one thing that I think is important is that we ask Jesus to help us in it. This is make or break in your faith in life. And it is something, again, that I think might seem so obvious, but it's something that we, I think we never do in the church. You see, so often I find that we talk about how God's got everything in control. You know, we talk about how God will provide for us and how his grace is enough in so many areas of our life for sin, for health, for provision, for whatever else. You know, God's got it. He's good. But I find when it comes to our faith, uh, we think that's our own. God doesn't have any say when it comes to my faith. That's on me. Uh, But that's not what we see here. We see that even in matters of faith, that Jesus in grace steps down to where we are, like he does with everything else in our lives. So why do we think it's different when it comes to our faith? 
when we're stuck in sin. Jesus doesn't wait for us to figure things out. He doesn't wait for us to get out of sin before he meets us. No, he steps down to us where we're at. In that moment and in our sin, he offers us grace. When we're so desperately insecure and unsure of ourselves, Jesus doesn't wait for us to figure ourselves out. No, in grace and love, Jesus steps into that insecurity with us. And he says that we're beautifully and wonderfully made and he's making you into his masterpiece. When anxieties are all around us and our minds are at ease, Jesus doesn't wait for us to figure that out or for our life to calm down. He says, cast your anxieties on me because I care for you. When you're tired and wearied, when life is too much for you, he doesn't wait for you to go get some rest. He says, no, come to me, you who are wearied and burdened, and I will give you rest. Jesus in every aspect of our lives in grace will meet us at where we are at. And that is no different when it comes to your faith in, and when it comes to your doubts. Jesus will meet you in the midst of your doubts like he met the Father in the midst of his. The Father called out to Jesus to help him in his doubts and Jesus does. He meets the Father where he is. Where he is. You see, doubt isn't the issue. Doubt that isn't brought to Jesus, that's the issue. Doubt that isn't brought to God, that's the issue. And so let me say, this isn't license to doubt as you please, to go along and, and do whatever, but this is license to bring your doubts before God. That's the key. That's the whole thing when it comes to doubt. If doubt pushes you away from God, then that's the issue. But, if doubt, in, but doubt in and of itself is not the problem. You will experience it. And when you do, Bring it to God. He will meet with you in it. You see, one last confession today. This prayer is actually the prayer I pray the most in my life. If you want to know what prayer by sheer number, I've probably prayed more than anything else in my life. This is probably it. You might expect the answer to be the Lord's Prayer. Maybe it should. I don't know. You might expect that the answer uh, could be any other prayer that you've heard, whatever, but it, it's just it's not. The prayer I say most often, the prayer I say over and over in my life is, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. When I'm with my students, when I'm running youth programs, meeting with students, I pray these, prayer all, uh, I pray these prayers all the time. God, I believe, but help my unbelief. Uh, when I, like you, who so many of you are, are, you know, maybe praying for people in your lives who are ill, or for me specifically, when I'm praying for my students, I pray this prayer, you know, God, I believe you're so good, I believe you can heal, and I ask that you would, but sometimes, God, I wonder if you're doing what's best for them. God, sometimes I wonder if you're, control, if you're in control, because it's really hard to see right now. Would you help my unbelief? I pray prayers like that all the time. This prayer has been the bedrock of my faith since I first heard it. Bringing your doubts to Jesus is one of the most important things you can do in your faith. Uh, he will always meet you there. He will always be gentle with you. And he will always have a loving response, a correcting and guiding hand to come along with you and help you through it. This doesn't mean, I will say this, doesn't mean it's going to be a light switch fix. That is to say that you can just say that prayer and you're just going to feel great. Maybe you will. Who knows? Sometimes God does it. But it, this does mean that as you wrestle with this doubt, God will be with you. And he will wrestle with you in it. As I've prayed about doubts in my past, God has directed me to people, resources, and scriptures to me to, to direct, correct, and guide me. And I'm confident that to anybody who does this, he will do the same. Now, uh, as we finish off here, you might be saying, yeah, Wes, look, I, I hear you, but I, I still can't shake this idea uh, that my doubting is wrong. It's just, I've, I've been along with, around the church for too, too long with who I've grown up with. This is what I've been taught. And that's fair. Some of you also might be saying, Wes, you're, you're 
23. Well, I'm 24 now. It's, it's hard. Age is hard. I'm 24. You might be saying, well, you know, what do you know about doubting? You're still a kid. What has gone on in your life that has ever caused you to have actually doubted? And to that I might say, yeah, you're right. I might not have been through much compared to what I'm sure so many of you have experienced in your life. But I do know somebody who has maybe experienced as much, if not more, than what many of you have. Um, we're going to finish off with this story. If you jump to Luke 7, you get this amazing uh, story that's often overlooked, but there's, this, there's just so much in it. This story is in the middle of Luke, and so Jesus' ministry has started. And at this point, John the Baptist has been thrown in jail. John was in prison because he was vocal about King Herod and his unlawful marriage. And so he found himself locked in jail. Now, let me remind you, this was John the Baptist. The guy who came from the wilderness preaching repent and be baptized for the kingdom of heaven is near. And, and he was saying that because God is about to do something amazing. The Messiah was coming. John was prepping the way for him. And this is actually the same guy who in Luke 7 does something really, really interesting. You see, in Luke 7, you get the scene where John's disciples are sent to Jesus. John sends them to Jesus. And they're sent to Jesus to ask him a very specific question. You see this in verse 19. They ask him this, are you the one who is to come? Or should we expect somebody else? Now, this seems weird, doesn't it? That this is the one guy who baptized Jesus. This is the guy who said that he wasn't fit to tie Jesus' sandals. And this is the guy who we find doubting Jesus and his role. I mean, it kind of makes sense. You know, God told John amazing things would happen. Go preach and baptize. And then Jesus showed up and John said, this is it. This is the one who God talked about. And so he went boldly preaching, calling out sin, and he found himself in prison. It would be really hard for anybody. Uh, it's John the Baptist, though. Uh, and so we kind of expect that maybe, you know, John has some faith. But it seems in this moment that he's actually doubting. But what does Jesus do in the face of John's doubt? Do you know how he responds? He takes John's disciples around with him for the next few hours. He heals people. He shows him his ministry. He heals diseases. Uh, he lets the lame walk, and he says to them, go back to John. Tell them what you tell, tell him what you've seen. He said that because he knew John would realize that this was prophesied, that what Jesus was doing was not just a normal, ordinary thing, that God was actually moving through the person of Jesus. It's like how we saw in Mark's story with the Father. Jesus reminds John about God's truth. He's doing the same. Uh, he reminds the Father about God's truth, and he's doing the same with John. And you want to know what the kicker is to all of this and the point that I want to rest on as we end this. After his doubting, you might think John's name would have had a bad taste in Jesus' mouth. But that's not the case. You see, right after John's disciples leave, uh, Jesus talks to the crowds about John. And do you know what he calls him? He says this about him in verse 28. I tell you, among those born of women, that's everybody outside uh, there is no one greater than john yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he it's a statement about humility for sure and how that factors into the, into the kingdom but the statement is actually meant in part as an honor to john he is the greatest person outside of jesus according to jesus on the face of the earth and jesus says that after john openly doubts jesus Look, I finish with this to say this. If John the Baptist can doubt and still be counted as the greatest person to walk the face of the earth outside of Jesus, you can live faithfully in the midst of your doubt. If John has to wrestle with God, who, uh, if John has to wrestle with who God is in his life, if, if uh, it makes sense that, you know what, so will you and I. We're also going to wrestle with that. And like John, we can know that Jesus already knows our doubts. And that he actually invites us to bring them to him. And he is actually able and fine and to deal with that. He's actually looking to not leave us alone, but bring us in closer during those times of doubting. He's looking to help us and he's looking to help you.
And so uh, know today you can trust God with your doubts. That you can actually go to him with them and that he will actually both walk with you and help you in them. Uh, let me pray for you uh, this week. God, uh, thank you for the story of Jesus and the grace that he has for us. Thank you that he meets us in our faith and in our doubting. God, we confess sometimes that we doubt and it's tough and we uh, want to bring them to you this week. And so I pray for uh, the Bimber congregation here, God, as they uh, go out there week and they experience these moments of doubt where they remind themselves of this message, God, uh, of the story of Jesus, that they can actually bring these doubts to you, God. Would you give them bravery and courage to do so? And uh, would you uh, give them an amazing week of closeness with you? We pray this all in your son's name. Amen.